Fashion Consort News Bites is a podcast that covers breaking news and current issues in the fashion, lifestyle, and retail industries. Insight and perspective is provided by the experts at Fashion Consort, an agency based in New York City focused on creating, producing, and delivering content that inspires, entertains, and educates. Follow us on Instagram at Fashion Consort Agency and learn more at fashionconsort.com. Thank you for joining us on Fashion Consort News Bites. I'm Joshua Williams. I'm the founder and president of Fashion Consort. Typically, we post short one to two minute episodes covering key areas, um, news and events uh, throughout the week. But today we're doing something a little bit different, a long format episode that deep dives into a topic. And in this week, we're going to be looking at women and leadership in the fashion industry. It's one component of a much larger diversity and inclusion conversation that needs to be front and center in an industry primarily led by older white men. And as an agency, it's an area that we dedicate a lot of our time and efforts in hopes of facilitating education and training for business leaders who want to benefit from more diverse voices in their organizations. I'm joined today by four members of the Fashion Consort team. While we're all based in New York City, today we're coming together via Zoom, and we have our fingers crossed that the sound quality will be consistent throughout our conversation. But without further ado, I want to welcome Isabella Donataro, Susanna Moyer, Karen Pang, and Phil, a.k.a. Corinne Phillips. Welcome, all of you, to the podcast this morning. So I wanted to just jump right in and uh, start with Isabella. Can you give us an overview of women in leadership in the fashion industry overall? Kind of give us a sense of of, uh, what the stats are. Yeah, I was actually surprised. I knew that there was definitely inconsistencies, but it's baffling that women in politics are about 18 to 33%, academics 5 to 32%, and in fashion, shockingly 14 to 25%. You know, the outsider status of women is particularly troubling in the fashion industry. You know, it's a microcosm of the wider issue of gender equality in our society. Women make up half of the population, spend three times more on clothing, virtually make up 100% of women's wear purchases, and understand the way a woman's body is shaped and how it changes after childbirth or decades, and yet men are still the designers and are seated in more than 75% of the powerful seats in the fashion industry. Shocking to me. It really is, and it's so interesting because fashion has always been very open to women. In fact, in the early early 60s, late 60s, going into the 70s, a lot of schools started offering fashion administration, fashion merchandising, in addition to their secretarial programs as they were looking for ways to bring women into new industries. So there was always a lot of women in the industry, and yet those women very rarely, uh, you know, climbed the ladder, so to speak, into executive leadership roles other uh, other than in sort of merchandising and in design. And I think uh, probably those numbers, um, Isabella, are, you know, if we take that into consideration, um, that that's even less people who are in leadership positions as women, right? Yeah, the actually the lower the the lower the number is is 
is the main part. So for academics per se, if you even if we're talking about African American or Latino women, that number drops down drastically even further. So while it's five percent, that's more the five percent for the the smaller aspects within the larger women's pool. Phil, I know that you spend a lot of time thinking about sort of the intersectionality of this issue, how it connects with uh, queer women, how it affects uh, queer women of color or women of color in general, uh, trans women. Can you talk about that a little bit in terms of how even um, if we're just talking about women in general, there there's a lack of leadership roles for women. But then when we start talking intersectionally, it becomes even less so. Yeah, I, I can't speak to that. So as you know, as someone who, you know, is very much an advocate for the queer community, uh, you know, you know, not all minorities, but I, I deal a lot with the queer community. I, I want to say that when we talk about women in leadership, it's very easy to think about, you know, it on a very broad spectrum and think about women and a lot for a lot of people that's white women, right? That's white women, that's women that identify as um, heterosexual and they're white. And I think that when we talk about women in leadership, we have to really broaden the conversation so that we are including people of color, we're including trans women, we're including uh, queer women. It, it's something that if, a, and I have to say this, this, uh, this goes well beyond fashion. I think the trajectory of any business should be including as much diversity within the upper management in order to have that business address the concerns of consumers of all shapes, sizes, colors, or whatever, whatever have you. So where, when I look at it, I think it's important that we get women in leadership, but I think we also need to make sure we have diverse voices even within that um, spectrum of people. There have been so many mishaps in the fashion industry as of late that I think could often be, we could avoid them if there were more diverse voices uh, within leadership roles, especially those of women. But I'm also thinking about tokenism a little bit and how some of the women who might be women of color, for example, who do have leadership roles uh, are sort of forced to take on the issues of all women of color. Uh, I was just reminded of a a moment I was with a large uh, retail organization and a woman stood up and said, listen, you know, I'm a Dominican and I'm often the, the token person of color in a room. And I'm asked about the black African um, experience or the African-American experience. I don't know. <laughs> you know, my family, I'm first generation from the island and I speak Spanish in my in my home. It's a very different thing than than growing up in the South as an African-American. So can you can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think this becomes a, a, an issue where if women sort of represent all women or a woman of color represents all women of color, then we're also creating another issue. Yeah, it is another issue. It's a different issue. Obviously it's, it's, you know, it's a step in the right direction, which is wonderful. But, you know, speaking as someone who was in technology for 10 years and was often the only woman and also women of color, especially a woman of color in a room full of like tons of white men, I know exactly what that feels like, you know, of course, it's. I feel you know. It, it was great to be there representing women. It was great to be there representing women of color. But like, I can't speak to experiences of an Asian woman or a trans woman or or a, you know a Latino woman. It's like I can't be the voice for everyone. So when you think about opening, you know, opening up the uh, the pool of employee employees to uh, diversity, you have to really. Be, try your best to get a broad spectrum of people, make sure that, you know, within 
your management, you are really opening it up because we need as many voices as possible. It really is going to affect the way your business connects with customers and it's going to affect um, the culture from within the business. I think that it's really important not to make one person who, you know, happened to make it break through the glass ceiling, the spokesperson for everyone. You know, that's just, that's never going to work. We were talking about sort of major mishaps that's happened. And one of the one that comes to mind immediately is the Dolce and Gabbana issue in China. And, you know, Karen, I'm hoping you can jump in here a little bit and talk about as as fashion business start to go more global and more international in their reach, and they're really trying to go into markets uh, such as China and India um, beyond sort of what the Western, you know, traditional cultures of, of Europe um, and America. How do you think that women can be involved in that? And sort of if, if women are given more leadership roles, do you think that some of these issues could be avoided uh, like the Dolce & Gabbana uh, fiasco in China? So, Joshua, I think that, you know, um, part of the, the Dolce mishap um, that happened um, about a year ago is really understanding culture and understanding it from so many perspectives. I remember watching that ad and I just asked myself, why would anybody want to eat pizza with chopsticks? <laughs> I've never done that before. And why would anybody eat, you know, um, a serving, a, ser- a family serving size of spaghetti with chopsticks? Now, yes, spaghetti is, you know, spaghetti is noodle, but I think the way it was portrayed, um, the, you know, the lighting, the makeup, the red lanterns, I think that it was very off-putting for the Asian community, especially for Asian women, because we were, ve- we were perceived in a negative light. You know, and I think that there ha- there are so many, many um, Asian women that have contributed to society. So when you ask about, well, how can we move um, in a positive way so that there is, you know, light at the, you know, at the end of the tunnel, I think first and foremost, to understand culture, brands need to communicate and need to be able to go to the source, whether it, and I have not, you know, consulted or worked for Dolce, but you should be seeking the help of someone who is an expert in the Chinese market to understand, first off, you know, what should the brand images look like? You know, what is happening with the Chinese culture today? There's so many things that go into it. It's socioeconomic, political. I mean, um, I could go on forever, but then what is it that is going to attract this population to buy your clothes. Assuming from your own perspective that it was, you know, fun and you were getting ready for the Lunar New Year, well, you didn't get the Lunar New Year because they had to shut, you know, your, your fashion show in Shanghai was shut down. So I think understanding it, um, not just from a business perspective, but from a cultural and behavioral standpoint is so important. It's such a good point, Karen. And, you know, I think especially as cultures are starting to shift in large part because of our ability to communicate in different ways through technology, it's not as simple as sort of looking at the Wikipedia version of what, you know, the Chinese culture is. First of all, the Chinese culture is very, very complex, depending on what area Mm -hmm. or geography you're in. And it's also very complex by generation as well. And there's a lot of shift that's happening. and, And I I think, you know, your point there is quite interesting that that 
particular ad, as problematic as as it was, was also sort of a European vision of what a you know a young um, Chinese woman you know might be doing or might be attracted to, and and I think that was part of the furor is this this sort of you know brought this woman down in this ad to almost a you know to a uh, an idea of Chinese culture that isn't really true or honest or authentic. Um, so I just want to jump in really quickly. I really want to add to what Karen just said. I, Karen, first of all, I love what you just said. But I think that to take it even further, like if brands want to portray a certain culture, they need to speak to someone of that culture so that they have, so they're representing it in a more authentic way. It's really important that authenticity plays into the ad so that people aren't, people aren't seeing something that they can't connect with. They can't connect with it if, if you're going to be consulting somebody who's not of that experience. I feel like that's very big part of creating authentic branding. And yet this is an issue that pervades almost every industry. I'm thinking about the medical industry and the drug industry and so much of the drugs that are made for women were made by men and then marketed, all the marketing was made by men for women. And it's like by the time it actually reaches the woman who's in pain, who needs that medicine, uh, it's so far gone from the initial sort of experience of that woman and what she might need. And, um, you know, we're just starting to see that shift happening in the drug, you know, medical world. Um, but it's also something that's I think we're going to hopefully start seeing in the fashion world. I want to come back to you, Isabella. You know, there are a lot of women who do work in merchandising design roles in uh, fashion. And yet often these women who work in the industry, uh, the designs, the clothes, the styles that go out into the stores don't reflect those actual women. In other words, the average size for a woman in America is 12, 14, 16. And yet these size standard um, that we see primarily in, in your mass uh, stores is anywhere from a zero to a 12. So can you speak to that a little bit, Isabella? Yeah, I, I just think that to me, if we're going to connect with our consumers on a retail level, and that's ultimately what we want to do, why aren't we actually appealing to them? So, you know, a study came out 10 years ago that the average woman was a size 14. It's now a si between a 16 and an 18. So 70% of our population is over a size 14, and yet mo most mass brands only appeal to a size 12. So how do we, how do we start getting our youth feeling good about themselves if there's not even things available for them on the shelf? So, you know, one of the great things about the fashion industry right now is there's a lot of startups and a lot of those startups are being run by women. And we're, we're seeing for the first time, I think, um, underwear companies that are specifically for women who are plus size or who don't have white skin, who are looking for a nude that matches their skin color. We're seeing this in beauty as well. Do you think that this is a trend that's happening sort of authentically or do you think this is really just about the bottom line right now and brands trying to figure out how to find new uh, sources of revenue? I think with people like Ashley Graham and certain people that have been at the forefront of body positive, that it is it is authentic in that sense. But yes, and you know, from both perspectives, from a business perspective, they should jump on the bandwagon. What 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 are we waiting for? You know, it's kind of it's. It, it works either way. Either way, I'm okay with it. <laughs> Suzanne, I want to get your voice in here. Uh, you've been working in the fashion industry for quite a, a while now in, in a lot of different um, areas, including luxury, 
and the mass market, but you've also had your own design firm and you've, you've had to be a leader, uh, you know, to run your own company. I'm just curious, what are sort of the barriers that you faced over the years? And um, as you kind of speak about those, do you feel like things are getting better? Do you think things are getting worse? Uh, they're the same? I don't know. I'm curious what you think. So in my experience, I've had many. Uh, I've worked for a menswear company where the president and myself were pretty much the only women in the business. And and I think, um, I think a thread that runs throughout my experience is that it's hard to have a voice as a woman in this white male dominated industry. And so many times I, I've spoken up and worked with the leadership involved and they listen and then they, they smile and then basically things evolve and they're coming back to me saying, oh, we should have listened to you. So, or listen to part of my team when I would go to my team and ask them their thoughts and what they think should be done. I like doing that. I like when I'm working with people, I like having a conversation and, and getting people's opinions and getting diverse reaction and getting, you know, just not my opinion, because I think, I think we forget that fashion is a team business. And even the person sewing the last button, this is what I would tell my, my, my teams as I would work with them on calendar and getting things done and, and building a collection, putting it together. That person putting our button on is important because we need that person. We need to engage them. We need to have relationships within a business. And, and so as building um, teams throughout my career and also working up in management, there have been better and worse scenarios, but but it's such an important part of really understanding the demographic and um, of who you're designing for to have a demographic within your design team and within that pool of resources and information. You know, the, the fashion industry, especially in, in the United States, was born out of immigrants. Um, it was immigrants coming over from Europe at the turn of the century that needed to use their skills in order to um, make money in the new world. And uh, it was a very scrappy business. And often it was a, a, a husband and a wife who were running these businesses upstairs. And then downstairs, they might have their shop or they might have push carts that were going around downtown New York as they were pushing their wares. And in fact, it was the fashion industry uh, that unionized first the women, right, in order to get fair wages, especially after uh, the factory uh, disaster that we had early in the 20th century at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. And I'm just curious, do you think that that sort of history imbues the experience of women in fashion? Do you think that that's sort of front and center? Or do you think that some of that's been lost? Or I'm just curious how you feel is kind of part of the bigger arc of the fashion uh, industry in America. I, I think that it is segmented. And I think that history is there, but forgotten many times. And with the ethical and uh, and focus on newer issues that have happened with factories uh, and and situation with workers and understanding how how clothing really gets made outside of the U.S. Now that that is basically um, what what happens. When I had my business, we were making garments in New York City. I, I shared an office with Tracy Reese, and we shared resources and showrooms and, and and it was a great period of time of getting things made quickly and reacting to trends and and having more control over our product but but i think that as 
as all of that moved away from us in terms of production, um, mainly in Asia, I think that things have gotten more segmented and we're less aware of the dynamic. That's such a great point because fashion really is going through a corporatization, right? We've, we did, we went through that in the 80s, especially as things started to move overseas. And we're seeing that again with the likes of these major, major companies from LVMH, Caring Group, Tapestry. So, so the industry is getting more corporatized. And I think in that there's become some opportunities for women that didn't exist before. But at the same time, there's a disconnect with the past of, of fashion. And I I really love your your sort of thoughts about that and how it's it's segmenting. And I want to go to you Karen because you your experience has been on the retail side of fashion while Susanna's been primarily more on the design um, and product side. And I'm curious um, what your experience has been or what some of the barriers you've had to deal with as you have grown in the ranks at, at some major retailers here in the United States. Um, you know my my experience has been um, different uh, throughout you know the you know, the many years that I've been um, in the retail business. And I think that, you know, there have been some companies that I have worked for that have been, you know, a very open, uh, diverse uh, workforce. And um, I think the diversity, you know, is a way to, to open doors. Because if you see someone that is like you, that is a VP and SVP, you know, in a very high ranking position, I think that, you know, you will say then, you know what, there's somebody that, you know, I want to model myself after that I want to look, you know, look up to in my career or that person, you know, can mentor me. But, um, and then there have been companies that I have worked for that, you know, uh, I am, you know, an Asian American woman and, you know, I was asked to be, you know, the, the token person on the diversity, you know, diversity, uh, pamphlet workbook, (laughs) you know, if you, if you will. Um, but I want to circle back and really go to leadership. You know, I, I ask myself many times when I meet with leaders of, you know, of, of companies and say, you know, how do you define leadership? What is leadership about? And I always circle back to, you know, leadership is, part of its self-leadership and it's how you lead yourself because if you lead yourself in a positive way I think you have a better the, the probability of people following you or looking up to you you know all of those positive things you know are much higher so I always I always talk about self-leadership and how you lead yourself and I think that especially in our industry. It's a tough industry. It's a hard industry. You know, you, you, you work your way up. It's, you know, it's not just about sitting at New York Fashion Week or all, you know, the, the fashion shows. It's a very, very hard, demanding business. So how you position yourself, you have to be very strategic. And that goes hand in hand with, with how you lead yourself is extremely important. I want to open this up to all of you, this this particular question. Oftentimes, women in the workplace deal with stereotypes that, that go back, you know, for, for hundreds of years. And those stereotypes still sort of find themselves front and center of conversations around leadership and women. 
I want Susanna, if you can kind of start just kind of talking about those those issues, and then I'm I'm hoping that you, Phil, you can jump in and kind of talk about those stereotypes and how those are changing because of our changing understanding of gender and gender roles and gender expectations. And then also Isabella, who works a lot uh, with anti-bullying campaigns and really working with people with injuries and and other issues that might make them might make it more difficult for them to work in an industry such as fashion. I'd love to get all of your perspectives. So let's start with Susanna. So, so my perspective on on leadership and uh, experience and integrating different people within, you know, my teams and and really looking at how we can each in our own place lead the others and and really kind of guide and mentor as we go through the chain of positions. So the first, you know, the person coming in as the design assistant is learning from the associate designer and that, that chain goes up into um, where I would be at as an SVP or VP of design what what we did a lot of the times and and really looked at were were bringing bringing the designers that were on the bottom of the the design chain in terms of of really working um, in the industry and their experience is bringing them into leadership meetings once in a while and bringing them in to learn from others and how how to um, take information and not just having this information go down the food chain. So I think in a lot of ways, uh, we really kind of opened up communication and opened up information so people could be mentored and could mentor others. And what about the sort of stereotype of women either being too difficult or on one end and too emotional and too soft on the other to be true leaders? Because you're talking a lot about how you as an organization and you as a leader was trying to find ways to not only teach the people in your team how to do something, but also sort of the assets of leadership or the elements of leadership. Can you speak about that? So while that in mind, that's why I started with that point, is that we really learned within our women's community. And and most of my teams, you know, we had, um, I have to say, designers coming in, there's just so many design students that are women. And it used to be when I was in school, it was half and half male, female, but we really um, are mentoring in, in the way of how do we treat others? You know, how do we get information? How do we block those stereotypes and, and really open up our arms to different people's ways of thinking and their training? And I wouldn't just hire, you know, from one area of the market or, you know, it just really came, I really tried to look at designers as people that, that were, that had a talent base and not whether they came from one company or another company. So that stereotype I think is really uh, strong in the industry, like not being able to hire somebody coming from luxury into or from math into luxury and, and vice versa. So I think that, that there's a lot to say about, about building uh, clarity and, and not having the stereotypes exist within the teams that we work in. Yeah, and I'm curious, Phil, if you can jump in a little bit here because we're also talking about you know gendered stereotypes, and I just find it so ironic in the fashion industry that we're still putting traditional stereotypes on women about their roles as leaders. But then on the other hand, we have this idea of men in fashion as being um, all queer or all too soft, or t- you know they're they're the designers and they're emotional, and that's why they're in fashion. And it just seems so 
it just says it feels so complex. And, and why not can we just say, listen, we're sort of open to all sorts of diverse uh, types of people, whether they're creative, more right brain, left brain. And we don't necessarily have to put a male, female sort of moniker on that. But in many ways, I think that the sort of the feminist movement and the push for more uh, leadership from women is actually has the potential to change everything. So I'm curious, sort of from your perspective, Phil, you know, your thoughts about stereotypes, especially as uh, we start to think more about um, the types of pronouns we use, the types of facilities that we make available to a more gender fluid uh, workforce, um, what it means to be, you know, not the stereotypical American white woman in the workforce. So, you know, going to um, what you said about, you know, women uh, having sort of people thinking women can be overly emotional, overly sensitive, or if, you know, they, they have more of a, you know, very strict like leadership style, then that's like being overly harsh. I think, first of all, I think it's not really fair in, 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 in any way to assume that women, all women lead the same way, right? I, like going back to Karen's point about, you know, leading your, your own leadership and leading as yourself, I think it's important for everyone, no matter who it is, you know, what sort of group you come from, you know, whether it's queer women, you know, trans women, you know, African-American women, whatever the case is, we have to first get a good sense of what our leadership style is. And, and some of our leadership styles are, you know, can be a little like intense and some of them are a little softer and a little more, you know, I don't know, collaborative maybe. And so I think with, with the first thing we need to understand is that there's no need to take that on. I, I understand that that's a stereotype and that's something that very much exists, but I think it's really on us to decide that we're not going to be, you know, beholden to that stereotype and move beyond it because, again, everyone leads differently and you have to find your own leadership style. Uh, now, from the standpoint of, like, uh, queer women and, and, and diversity, I think uh, one of the things that I've always been fascinated by in the queer community is is our ability to um, become sort of creators of our own, of our own experience. So there are a lot of people in the queer community who need certain things and then realizing that the fashion industry, the retail industry, none of these industries are really going to give us what we want. And so we're taking it upon ourselves to create businesses that will, you know, address some of the things we want. Take, for instance, there, there are businesses that are creating binders. There are businesses that are creating underwear that are more, you know, geared to what, like, queer people want. We're, we're very good at deciding if no one's going to fill the gap and no one's going to meet our needs, we're going to make sure they get met. And so I think that is incredible in from a standpoint of business because if you have someone who's taken it upon themselves to, to create something for, for their community they don't see, this person's very much an asset. You know, every time a, a gap has been filled by someone in the queer community, that means it's, it, it was not seen or it, it never existed um, as being filled from the fashion industry, right? So I think from that perspective, we are incredibly, we're, we're creators. We create what we don't see. And I think that in itself can be very much useful from a leadership standpoint for business. So in many ways, there's an opportunity for for women, for anyone really, but to if they see a need in the market to sort of become the leader uh, in that market. I think, right. you know, the fashion industry on the outside feels very inclusive. I think that fashion often, as, as a part of culture, tends to be ahead of other industries. And I think, you know, that's an important thing to, to point out. But I think all of us here on this panel 
are also truly aware that behind the scenes, it's really not so much the case that, in fact, it's a lot less representative of diversity than, than we'd like to see. So, Isabella, can you talk a little bit about some of the work that you're doing and why this really needs to be part of how women lead uh, in the fashion industry? Yeah, I'm, I agree with Phil's point of the stereotypes and that we're there and we're breaking barriers. And that's what we've done all along from Lowell, Massachusetts, you know, and talking about the history and the, the, the females in the in the workforce. And now this new a new diversity that's opening up that they've never really embraced before with the queer and the LGBTQ communities. And I think that what we really have to do is articulate how those stereotypes need to be broken at this point. And the only way to do that, that I could, I could think of is to create a new verbiage around what are we doing different now? And what is the difference? Like, why are women soft and men, you know, the strong leaders? You know, why, why are we still in that old framework? And, you know, I had played this game a long time ago, probably 20 years ago. Give me three adjectives to describe a man and three adjectives to describe a woman. And, uh, you know, I it dumbfounded me for a second. You know, I, I don't have many moments of silence in my life. And I, it was very interesting because I, I was trying to come up with something and why can't we both be the same? So how do we change the language and what's indicative of a leader? Susanna and I in Paris, you know, we went, we travel the luxury market and there's, in, in the legacy of certain luxury markets, there's not even a female leader, and yet they're appealing to, to females. So we have to change this, and the only way uh, that I'm thinking of is how do we vocalize it, and how do we break those barriers with the language and how we articulate, you know, it's time for change and it has to be brought out there and maybe you know blind interviewing would work or uh i'm just throwing that out there but i think it's about the language really at this point karen what do you think that there like we've, we started out with a lot of it's the fashion industry is run by primarily white older men um, i do think that that's starting to shift a bit because uh, a lot of those people are second third generation owners of businesses and and they are starting to retire i think we are seeing and this is part of the apocalypse we keep talking about in retail is this massive shift that's kind of around the corner so to speak i think we're already seeing women uh, fulfilling uh, the needs in the marketplace that phil was talking about whether it's in queer whether it's in uh, disabled whether it's in uh, actually providing clothing that fit women of all types of uh, body shapes and fits and sizes. Um, but I'm curious what your thoughts uh, are in terms of how do we start to change from within, knowing that there are a lot of men in power. And then I want to go to Susanna after Karen and talk about how women can actually support women in these leadership roles, because you started talking about that earlier, and I think that's an important chain to continue. I'll jump in because I think Karen is um, somewhere else. Um, so I think that, you know, in my experience in the industry and working with women that were in leadership roles and leading me, I, I really was so disappointed in the way that a lot of them were not mentoring and not not really guiding me where um, I needed the growth, the onboarding, the um, 
the nurturing, uh, the men that had hired me were the ones that were more supportive. And I said to myself, like, why is this happening? Is it a competition? Is it is it that they're looking at me differently as a woman to woman in business? So I really made it an effort in in creating a different space for my team members and letting them know that they can come to me with any ideas. They can be creative. They can um, they can build projects within our teams to get us really working together better. Uh, we would have Monday morning meetings and every, every leadership position I had in business, we would have Monday morning meetings, just checking in with everybody, seeing how everybody's weekend was. What did they see? Did they go into the marketplace? Did they find something interesting? Did they have new ideas to bring back? I would send them also out to the stores. And um, one of the mass market jobs I had was with JCPenney. We literally were dressing America. It was almost a billion dollar business. And we would sit in the stores and watch people purchase and watch people touch and feel product and bring that back to the design studio. So empowering my teams, I think really built our businesses and made the business stronger. And it also brought us into the diversity of who the customer was. And I think a lot of uh, design companies and a lot of companies do not bring it down to that level so they can understand who actually is the consumer and the consumer is in the office many times. So, so it really um, comes down to using your employees and using your team well. We had a few little technical problems there and we lost Karen for a moment, but I wanna come back to you, Karen, uh, with your ideas on this issue. So we had mentioned in our conversation about you know, in our in the fashion industry, in our industry, many um, many leadership executive leadership roles are still have men in you know in the seats, and I think you know from my own personal experience, you know I I like working with everybody, men, women, you know the whole rainbow. But what I found is that there are there are men, and I've come across them, and I would describe them as more you know, these men that are more female centric. And so meaning they want to cultivate um, my, help me cultivate my career, push me forward, say things to me. I mean, I had a VP that said to me, really like working with you, but I'm going to push you out into a different department because I want you to grow and experience different kinds of business opportunities. I was very sad. (laughs) I was. And I said to him, you see, you're kicking me out of your house. And he said, no, I'm not. I want you to grow. You can come back, though, once you've, you know, once you've grown. And I think these are the types of experiences, you know, that we have, that we have to look for, you know, when we're, in, when we're in the industry. And I think that we have to continue to push. We have to continue to ask. You know, that's the one lesson um, that I always, you know, I have a line, and it is a closed mouth will not be fed. And so you have to continuously ask, I want to, what do you think about? Well, I've prepped this, take a look at this. And I think if we continue to do that, then we push ourselves. You have to push, you know, you have to push those boundaries. It's so, I'm so glad that you said that. There was two thoughts that I had as you were talking. One, as a professor at a fashion school in New York City, I would say about 95% of my students are women. And 
and yet the leadership of the program is all men. And we've actually had meetings and talked about how can we not only facilitate these women as they move into uh, leadership roles or move into the industry, but what do we need to learn uh, to in order to facilitate that? I mean, this is not our experience. All three of us have kind of had success in the fashion industry because of the privilege that men have in this industry. And really sort of understanding that and really broadening that to think about not just women, but just everyone and that diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. piece um, so that we're actually teaching that at a university level as well before uh, they get into the workplace. Because I think oftentimes we sort of teach with a very patriarchal view and then we sort of throw them into a very patriarchal business and and we haven't really set them up to be able, as you said, to sort of ask, to to know how to ask and how to insert themselves in in the industry. That is, as as Isabella points out early on, is very much driven by women. Uh, they're the, the bulk of the sales in this industry. They're the ones who have the most connection to this industry in terms of whether we're talking about social media or marketing. In many cases, they're the ones that are ahead of their household that are not only just purchasing for themselves, uh, but for their children and for their partners or whoever it might be. And yet we still sort of come at this from from a male point of view. The second piece, and then I want to open this up to just uh, as we sort of end here, just ideas and, and thoughts that I think we that the listeners can take away about uh, how we can sort of move forward in a more sort of uh, diverse way, giving women a louder voice, a, a voice that is very deserved and needed in order to sort of solve the problems. Um, but before we do, I just, this agency, as I've, I've worked on it over the past 10 years, I've always kind of gone back to Brene Brown and her concepts around vulnerability, which often is sort of considered a negative trait. Some might even say it's a female trait. It's a soft thing and, and that men avoid. But I come back to that a lot as, as a tenant for the agency because I truly believe that vulnerability is courage to listen and courage to speak up. And uh, those two things are very difficult. And, and it's something that as I go into organizations and speak and uh, train and educate that I'm always very mindful of. How do I listen and be vulnerable to that? And how uh, do I speak up and share my experience, share my, my ideas in a way that I hope will help? help that organization. So why don't we start with you, Phil? Uh, what do you, what are your thoughts um, sort of as takeaways? What do you think are, you know, a couple of things that uh, women can go forward with into the industry or how can the industry, ch- you know, change um, from within? Yeah. So I think that the first thing I would say is um, you were talking about like how you, you know, 70% of, I believe of the students you teach are female. And I think um, I would love to talk about the mentorship sort of piece of this in terms of like men in positions of power and how they take on more mentoring of women. Uh, I think that that's not something that is talked about. That's not something that is focused on very often, but I think that I'm the kind of person I feel like in terms, it, it doesn't matter whether it's in business or it's in my personal life, I believe that you should try to connect to things that are happening in your in your life and let that lead how you sort of walk in, how you walk through the world. So if you're a man and you're in a position of power, do you have a daughter? Do you have a, 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 a niece? Do you have a, you know, do you have a sister? You know a woman. You clearly you know everyone knows a woman, right? Like, think about what, how it would feel if you thought that that person was being sort of, I don't know, sort of blocked off 
from their true potential because they were not necessarily taken under the wing of someone that could help them. When I was working in technology, I had an incredible person that was not just a really great friend, but also was like a mentor that brought me into it. They would answer any question I need to ask, hired me for jobs. Like he made it so possible so that when I decided to leave technology, but was still being asked to be on panels or, or this, that, and the other thing, I, other people would see a woman of color, a queer woman of color being, you know, successful in that, in that capacity. So if you are a man and you're somebody who, you know, has someone in your life that you love and you care about that is a female, think about what it would be like if they were being like sort of their true potentials being blocked because no one actually took a, a moment to maybe mentor them or help them get somewhere. I love Karen's example of, of her, you know, her supervisor that sort of pushed her out of the nest. It's like he wanted to see her be better. So we have to like, we need more of that happening. I think that's really important. I love that personalization yeah. of the issue. Exactly. Let's go to I, Isabella. Yeah, I'd love to jump in because I really do feel like it's important for us at this point to advocate for more diversity in the workplace. We have to do it. We're at this wonderful revolutionary time of all these changes in the world happening. And right now, we have to show that by varying the gender, the age, the race, the cultural background, the sexual orientation, the religion of the person that's working for you gives different perspectives on the consumer. And if we have a panel that represents all these different consumers, then we're going to be able to appeal to our customer. Then it's going to enhance our bottom line. And there's so many opportunities for employing people of underserved communities in the workforce that statistically proves that it will actually benefit your business in the long run and also give back to society. Thank you. I love that too. I want to go to, to Karen uh, next to kind of share her, her thoughts. So a couple of thoughts that I have is, um, you know, I'm going to circle back to, I found a statistic that there's only 6% of um, Fortune 500 companies um, that are led by women. So that number is about uh, 34. 34 of companies in the in Fortune 500 companies are led by females. And so I think, you know, um, for my generation, for the next, you know, for the next generation, I think it circles back again to self-leadership. Self-leadership is what you're taught. Part of it is what you're taught from a very young age. And I think as you grow, the more, the more positive influence you have, the mentors that you have, that can help you grow, I think is so important. So, you know, to what Phil said about mentorship, I think it is extremely important to be mentored and so that you are preparing yourself for the next stage that you have. And I will say that the last piece of it is something that it's very personal to me, but, you know, my mother um, came to this country with my father with nothing. And she is one of the strongest business women that I know. And she said to me, you have to ask every single day for what it is that you want. So I'm going to leave you with those thoughts. Please ask, ask every day. A closed mouth does not get fed. Thank you. Can, can I say one other thing? I just want to jump in on a little bit of what Karen uh, said. Of course. I also think it's important. Um, I think the reason why I also mentioned about like the mentorship 
piece is that can you imagine what it would be like to be mentored by somebody who is maybe a white man of privilege, right? So the way that person may mentor you might be a little different than someone else who is not used to being able to speak up, not used to having a, a seat at the table. I think being mentored from that position is a very powerful place to be mentored. Think about it, right? You, you're going to speak up, you're going to talk, ask for what you want. Just like what Karen said, I think it's interesting this thought of like, if you are somebody who's experienced privilege in your life, you don't know what it's like not to have a voice. You know, that's not even something that enters your experience. So you mentoring somebody else who doesn't have that voice, who doesn't have that voice automatically, is really important. That really gets to the power of the network that so many people lack, especially women. Susanna, your thoughts. So, so jumping off of what Phil just said, I was really lucky to have somebody amazing mentor me. And uh, he is still part of my life. He's still checking in on me. And this is going back about 10, 10, 12 years ago when I was hired. Uh, and, and him having the confidence in me as the president of, of a division of a large, large corporation with all his experience and all the knowledge that he gave to me when he was in the company and outside of the company, I have to say as well, um, Karen Harvey, who is one of the most important recruiters and and um, fashion people in the industry over years, um, she really took me under her wing and and really believed in me when a lot of the times, you know, you go through these interviews and these processes of finding a job, getting a job, moving on to the next place, and really kind of questioning yourself. And when somebody takes the time to work with you and, and also uh, have confidence in you and build you up and talk to you differently, it really helps you. I think that being who I am and, and seeing the way I was discriminated against in terms of people looking at my work and asking me, did you do that by really making taking an opinion on on what I look like, that was really shocking and surprising to me early on in my career. So so I think there's many things that we all walk away from. And and I'm just really happy to be a part of this conversation because I think throughout my my working in business and teaching as well at design schools um, over my career, I really the number one thing is I want the person that's talking to me to be heard. And I want to really ask myself, how can I help this person with the talent that they have? And who do I know that, that I can lead them to the next step with? And, and I think if there was more, the, more of that within the industry throughout all levels, we would have a much better place to work. I want to thank all of my colleagues at Fashion Consort for participating in this today. It is not lost on me that I am the only man in this conversation. Uh, but I, I do want to say that this has been very much a part of how I've wanted to create an agency that gives voice to people who haven't always had a voice and, and frankly, who deserve and need to power the next generation of fashion. I know that I have a lot to bring to the table, but I believe that the the diversity in voices and really thinking about that will make the changes that we need. And I, I'm so thrilled to be able to work with these wonderful people. So we hope that you will tune in to uh, future News Bites and uh, we'll be having more of these conversations throughout uh, this time of crisis as we sort of look as an agency about how we can help you to grow your businesses in a more authentic, more organic way 
and with the hope that after the pandemic, we can really push reset and really think more about the human quality of this business that I think is the reason that drew us to the fashion industry and lifestyle industries in the first place. News Bites is a Fashion Consort production. Visit fashionconsort.com for more information.